Everyone has hobbies, right? I mean, or at least we should. Your hobby might be woodworking or painting or crafting. But when it comes down to it, a hobby is something that brings you joy when you do it. And it's kind of outside of your work. But if you study ecology and bugs and birds just flows through your blood, then there's a good chance that your hobby is more scientific than not. My name is Louis Coldorotolo, and my hobbies are complaining about the fact that I don't have any hobbies. I'm a University of Guelph PhD student in the food science department, and I like to, as I guess, well, a hobby, talk with other current or recent graduate students from the science fields about what really interests them. And in some cases, we don't end up even talking about what the person studies. In this case, for today's episode, we're talking to Kit Straley, who has a very interesting hobby. Kit studies and teaches all about birds and their environment, but today we are going to talk about something that she does on the side, which may seem a little more scientific than most people's hobbies, but she rears or raises giant silk moths. Yeah, I, I know, that that's legitimately her hobby. That's what she wanted to talk about on today's show. So that's what we did. We had a great conversation with Kit about what it is like to be a person that raises giant silk moths and what goes into that entire process. So for today's episode of We Know Some Stuff, we're going to kind of step away from what we learn classically in school and how we are trying to get our degrees, and we're going to step into a sort of softer side of the science. We're going to see what Kit does, how she raises moths, what's the hardest parts, what's the most rewarding parts, and we're going to also talk about how she calls moths sky puppies. But, I mean, I guess we'll get to that part later. And something to keep in the back of your mind while you're listening, that we're graduate students, we really don't know everything, and we're bound to make a mistake or two, but that's not going to stop us from talking about what we're passionate about. So it's worthwhile saying that we don't know everything, and that's why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi Kit, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing alright, how about you? I am good over here. Could you do us a favor and just walk us through your educational history? Sure. So um, my name is Kit Straley, and I did an undergraduate degree uh, at Ithaca College in biology. I had some research experience there that was all about hamster behavior, which is pretty fun. Um, and then I am now a graduate student at UMass Amherst, and I don't study hamsters anymore. I've switched to birds. <laughs> And I study birds in a, a wild context, so outside, not in a lab setting, which is also different from what I did in undergrad. Um, and I have one other research experience that kind of bridges the two, where I had an internship um, off the coast of North Carolina studying sea turtles. And that's where I really first learned that I loved, A, working outside instead of in a lab, and B, um, working with wild animals instead of hamsters in a dark basement. So that's kind of my trajectory. So you went from like land to air to sea. You, you're you covering all terrain in your research. <laughs> yeah, I first studied uh, mammals in captivity, and they're nocturnal too, so we studied them under red light, so that was super fun. Um, mm. And then I switched to being nocturnal myself and studying sea turtles, which are um, reptiles out in the wild, but also at night under red light. <laughs> And then I decided to go completely different 
and work with birds who you don't, you're not nocturnal when you work with birds. In fact, you have to get up at the crack of dawn to work with wild birds. So that to me sounds basically nocturnal. So you went from being, uh, and excuse my phrasing, you went from being a rat in a cage to a free bird. Sure. <laughs> All right, I'm done with wordplay for the day. So we are actually not going to directly discuss what you study today, which is uh, not so much what we do for the show for the most part. We're going to discuss uh, something that you do completely outside of work and, and, and something that uh, really just makes you you. Can you give us an introduction to what your hobby is? Yeah, so uh, my seasonal hobby is the rearing of giant silk moths. So um, I say it's seasonal because I spend the uh, summer uh, breeding these moths and then rearing the caterpillars. And then in the fall, they start to form cocoons. They hang out in their cocoons all winter. And then next spring, I'll get to actually see them again as adult moths. So it's kind of a seasonal hobby that I enjoy. Okay, so so it does take you all year to do it. It's just that there's more active periods of the year. Yep. So the winter is pretty easy. They just hang out um, in a garage. <laughs> <laughs> it's low maintenance. As far as pets go, I guess that that's probably one of the low maintenance pets out there. Yeah. So, okay, I got like a trillion questions. Um, do you see them as pets? Ooh. Oh, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. I have a couple of, of uh, pets that I definitely consider pets. Um, I don't know. They're, they're little animals, and I do I give them names, but then I release them because they're a native species that's declining. So I kind of give them help by rearing them in captivity and protecting them from predators and diseases and things like that. But I do end up releasing them. So they're not a pet. They're like a temporary ward. Mm, you're almost like a foster home for moths. Yeah, kind of. This is beautiful. You're building a beautiful future for them, and I love it. <laughs> so, all right, you, you, you dabbled into it in your last answer, but why do you do this? Why in, in, in the world are you raising giant silk moths? It's not something I intended to do, um, but <laughs> I don't know. In science, you end up having a lot of friends that study or are interested in different things. And even though I study birds, I have a lot of friends who are entomologists who study insects. And one of my entomology friends retired and his retirement party was just a yard party of prominent entomologists from the area coming together and hanging out. And, you know, as one does, giving him giant moths as presents. So... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Someone brought right. him a giant moth, um, females, <laughs> and during the course of the party, the female called in and attracted wild males. They mated, the female laid eggs, and then as a party favor, he handed out eggs to guests. <laughs> so this all started because I went to a party. Um, well, I, I'm a little speechless. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> so I, I can, I actually, I'm just like picturing this right now. You got a bunch of entomologists like crawling on the lawn in some guy's backyard looking at different bugs and stuff Accurate. as an entomologist might do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> what a fun group of people. All right, so so you got these eggs. Um, and this was this was like, you know, uh, ad hoc. This was like fresh eggs from the from the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you got these eggs and, and what did you do with them? Um, I put them in an old takeout soup container. <laughs> okay. And Very good. then I talked to my friends and learned more about how folks rear them in captivity and why folks would want to rear them in captivity. Um, and he explained that in general, um, there are a couple of different species of, of these giant silk moths around where we are, but in general, they're all declining. And so there's, it turns out there's like a whole network of hobbyists in the area who kind of rear these different species recreationally and give them a head start. Learning that, I'm like, all right, I have a old container. It's got eggs. In like two weeks, they're going to come out. What, what do I do? And he walked me through the process of how to rear them. And so it began. Yeah, so, you know, we hear so much about, you know, this species declining, that one's almost extinct, and, you know, what can we other do than really just, like, scroll past the article sometimes? So you're you're taking the the fact that these silk moths are, I, I don't know, are they, are they endangered? Are they becoming endangered? I, what's the exact term we would use? So they're not listed as endangered, um, but people have been documenting their decline since, like, the 1950s. Oh. And there's a couple of potential reasons, and some of them, you know, are pretty standard for wildlife in general. So loss of habitat, uh, light pollution can also influence moths. Um, there's also uh, one that I feel is kind of our fault, our meaning humans in general, where um, there's an invasive species of moth called the gypsy moth in our area. And scientists... Um, had introduced a fly from Europe to try to help control that native or non-native moth. And unfortunately, the flies that they introduced are also attacking native moths. So it's one of those things where the fly is out there and it's and it's present. Um, so there's not a lot we can do with that, but we can kind of um, do a couple of things to boost moth populations by doing like Head Start programs, kind of like what I do or just by uh, decreasing light pollution and increasing habitat by planting native plants. Oh, interesting. So I I know that there's always a reason for these things, and I'm no ecologist. I don't know the circle of life very well at all. But why do we want these moths? When I think of moths, I'm thinking things that eat my sweater and things that are constantly around my porch light. That is a good question. I'll ask you this. Have you ever seen a luna moth? Do you know what a luna moth is? No idea. Ooh, okay. It's just one of the more commonly known moths. Um, so moths play an important role in the ecosystem, and it's not even necessarily um, as an adult, although bats and other creatures will eat them in their adult form. But really, it's all about, from my perspective as a, as a bird nerd, it's all about caterpillars. So uh, when birds are raising their young, some of the best food that they can feed are caterpillars. Um, caterpillars are the larval stage of butterflies or moths. So really, um, I think about things from a food web perspective. So in addition to just enjoying their beauty, um, some moths in other areas act as pollinators, and then also they serve as food resources for other organisms. 
Okay, so these moths have a, a lot of purposes beyond, and I just Googled a picture while you were talking. They are. That's a pretty moth. <laughs> you know, it's everyone, when they, they should, everyone should like look up what a Luna moth is. It's, it's actually like really, I would have thought like moths are just those like nasty little white things that are flapping around, but this is a pretty one. There's a huge diversity of moths and they eat different things. So a Luna moth is never going to be in your closet eating your sweaters. It's not their. Oh. It's not their deal. <laughs> they're not into that. That's not a flavor that they're interested in. Yeah. All right. So, so these uh, you're you're raising these moths and then releasing them, but you're not releasing the caterpillar forms, are you? Yes and no. So my first year, oh. I didn't have a ton of caterpillars. I actually have done this for a couple of years now. Um, so my first year, I was rearing uh, Cecropia caterpillars. Um, that's a type of moth. And those are the ones that I got from my friend's party. And once I started raising those, another friend in the area said, oh, I have some um, Promethea caterpillars. Would you be interested in raising those as well? And so um, I ended up having two species. And then the very first um, summer that they came out of their cocoons, they started to call in mates. And then they would mate and lay eggs. And the eggs eventually hatch as caterpillars. And I never had you know, super large numbers of eggs. So it was manageable for me to keep rearing them. This past summer, I had, I think, 80 moths emerge from cocoons. It was a pretty successful year. And females would call in males. And I ended up having somewhere north of 2,000 eggs. Okay. So 2,000 caterpillars. And uh, caterpillars eat leaves. They're massive uh, defoliators. Uh, meaning that they're eating leaves off of trees and other plants. So there was no way that I was going to be able to feed 2,000 hungry mouths. So I found other hobbyists in the area who were interested in taking small batches of like 20 caterpillars. And then I also, this is when we started calling it a Caterpillar Head Start program. I also spoke with members of the Massachusetts uh, Butterfly Club, Moth and Butterfly Club, about... Um, if they had appropriate host trees on their property and if they would be willing to let me disperse them. So I actually went out um, with a paintbrush because the tiny caterpillars are very delicate and you don't want to smoosh them. And I basically painted people's cherry trees with caterpillars. And some of those caterpillars sur probably survived. Some of them were probably eaten by birds. Some of them were probably parasitized by wasps. It's just the circle of life. I, I can only imagine just an image of you going up to a tree and painting it with caterpillars. That's such a visual image that I just kind of love right now. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, but then there was the concern like from the people, like they're like, oh, I can't see the caterpillars anymore. Are they all getting eaten? Are they going higher up in the tree? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and if they are getting eaten, like your birds are happy. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's like, a, because as you said, they affect a lot in the environment. And if, if you want to keep the bird population up, the birds need something to eat. So it, it, it is, it's the circle of life. Everything is kind of balanced in on itself. So you're kind of, uh, you know, entering the system. You're giving the system a lot of, uh, uh, you know, something to eat and something to live on. So that's super cool. Yeah, so um, I have to ad admit, and this is something that doesn't come over perfectly well over radio. I can see that there are bats in the background of your your living room over here. Yes. <laughs> what are they doing up there? So I really love Halloween, but not scary Halloween. I love critter Halloween. Like I love uh, 
decorating the house with spiders and bats and snakes and all of the creatures that are typically unloved. So for Halloween, we had set up a little (laughs) roost of bats here. Oh, there's so many more than I expected. (laughs) And then we talked about taking them down and I thought, you know, bats roost over the winter. So technically it's still an accurate seasonal decoration. (laughs) So I convinced my husband to let us keep them up. So, okay, so this is now turning into like a a more of a a winter holiday decoration as well, because it is accurate. Yep. All right. So then would these bats be eating some of the the, the moths that you're raising, the caterpillars? Yes, potentially. So we do actually have bats in our yard, too. We're very, very lucky. I've never seen them get one of my moths, but that's because I can't see at night what they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, we talked earlier an episode a while back with uh, Laura Hancock, who um, is crazy about bats. I say that she's bats about bats. Um, and she discussed the, the, the very possibility of like having a bat house in your backyard that you can do to uh, help bats uh, in their populations, like all on your own. Mm-hmm. So that's like, a, that's super cool that you know, people like you and her are doing these little like uh, environmental projects to kind of like help boost our ecosystem that like desperately needs our help. Yeah. And I think one of the, the coolest part about rearing the moths is just uh, bringing the joy of them to other people. So, um, you know, this spring with COVID and everything, people were stuck in their houses, people were stuck at home. So I actually got a couple of different bug cages, like small versions of them and put little batches of cocoons and handed them out to different families around the valley who have kids so that they could enjoy watching these moths come out. And then if the moths mated, they could then have eggs and raise caterpillars with their kids as well. Um, And it's really exciting and magical. I think the most exciting part is when a female comes out of the cocoon within the first like day or so, she starts sending out these pheromone signals for wild males to find her. And so you'll just be, you know, sitting on your couch, not doing anything. And on the back deck, there are some mesh containers with cocoons and moths. And then all of a sudden you'll like see something in the corner of your vision, like something flapping on the deck. And you're like, is there a bird out there? This is what happened the first time. (laughs) I was like, is there a bird out there? And then I went and looked and there were eight wild males just swarming around on the deck trying to find her. Um, And when I spoke with the families this, this summer about it, they said it was like, being in a butterfly house, but in their own yard. Like they're just excited with the kids to be seeing it actually happening. Yeah, that's so cool. That's an experience that is like, you got to cherish that kind of thing, right? To to be seeing this real process of life happening right before your eyes in your very own backyard, just from raising this, uh, what was once this fuzzy little cocoon thing. Yeah, it's just really, really, I don't know, magical and exciting and it's just hard to hard to explain. It is like this circle of life thing happening and you waited a whole year to see them again and you don't know if they're going to if they successfully went through metamorphosis, you don't know if they're going to come out and when they come out, you don't know if they're going to be a male or a female, but once they do, um at least for one of the species that I do, the main species I do now is Promethea, they're sexually dimorphic, meaning the males and females look different. So as soon as they come out, I'm like oh, and I know who it is and I don't know, it's just really exciting. Uh, that is so cool. Now I, I have something to admit, and I don't, I don't feel so comfortable saying it. But I think I, as a child, may have extinct all 
caterpillars from my yard growing up. My brothers and I and our neighbors, we would catch caterpillars like all day for for months and months and months and we would keep them in jars and they would they would die uh because we didn't take care of them we didn't give them food or anything and sometimes we'd like just put lids on the jars so they didn't have air either way we kept doing it and doing and doing it as we noticed as the years went by we were able to get less and less caterpillars um to put into our torture chambers uh, more or less. Uh, is there any way that what we were doing was really being harmful to the population, the caterpillars? Or can I, like, go to sleep tonight not worrying about my actions? Ooh, okay, that's a tough question. Well, so generally for insects, they're really, really fecund, which means one individual can lay a lot of eggs. So if even if you were getting, like, a couple of different caterpillars, the the density of how many individuals were out there, I don't know that you were necessarily like really affecting that or harming that from a more of like a landscape scale. Um, however, just in general, I try to be respectful of little, <laughs> of little critters. So I think ever since taking care of the caterpillars, um, I think it's really easy for folks and in, including biologists, especially like wildlife biologists to think of um, invertebrates as like I said, for bird, like a food resource, but they are living creatures in their own right. So I try to do my, my best at taking care of them. I am kind of curious. So you mentioned that you were catching them and putting them in jars. Did you ever have one of those jars have a, have a wasp in it? A wasp? No, but I, is this something to do with the parasite thing that you were yeah. talking about? So when I was little, <laughs> I used to collect caterpillars from my grandmother's garden and um, I have two older siblings, and so we would each get one. We'd bring it home in a jar, and we'd give it things to eat. And every single year that I recall, without fail, my brother got a butterfly. My sister got a butterfly. I got a wasp. And so now I have this angry wasp in a jar that I need to let out somehow. <laughs> um, and it was always incredibly stressful. And I wish that at the time, like, my parents or someone would have known more to be like, actually, like that wasp did come out of that caterpillar because parasitism where wasps actually find caterpillars who are just, um, you know, big old sacks of nutrients to other organisms. And they will actually like lay their egg underneath the skin of the caterpillar. It's very, very creepy, right? I noticed you just kind of flinched a little. It's, it's a little <laughs> spooky to think about. <laughs> but yeah, I never realized that that was actually what was happening. And I think that's one of the reasons why I raise the caterpillars in the way that I do. So some folks raise them outside and some folks raise them inside. And if you raise them outside, you find an appropriate host tree so they can only eat um, certain kinds of trees. You find an appropriate host tree, you put the caterpillars on a branch and you put like a little sleeve bag around it to prevent them from running all over higgledy-piggledy. Different predators can get in those bags and the parasitic wasps can poke them through those bags. So I don't do that. I raise them indoors in buckets and I keep them super safe and protected. And I think part of it is because I was a little traumatized by the wasp from when I was younger. And I, I understand that. And in, in all fairness, I may have killed a lot of caterpillars growing up, but we did get a lot of butterflies and moths. I remember, not going to lie, I, we were disappointed when it was a moth, not a butterfly, because butterflies are cool uh, or at least cuter sometimes. Um, but it, it, it 
developed like a curiosity in, in me as a child. You know, I, I never went into the biologies, but now whenever I see a caterpillar, I'm kind of like always amazed by it. You're like, who are you going to become? Yeah, I know. It's like really cool. And they just like inch along. And I know you're over in um, Massachusetts where, you know, Eric Carlisle, his famous Hungry Hungry Caterpillar, he's from that area. And they have that museum around the corner from you. Um, And that book was like a really big book for me growing up. I remember reading it a million times. It is a very fun book. But the caterpillar in that book eats a lot of different kinds of things. Yeah, like everything, though. Yeah, but in this is kind of like a fun fact. But in nature, um, at least for my moths, once the caterpillars start eating a certain kind of leaf, you can't give them any other kind of leaf. Like Hmm. something is like locked in and they're like, this is my kind of leaf. You try to give them something else, they will die. So a very hungry caterpillar. I don't know what that caterpillar's like stomach was like because he was running around eating things left and right, completely different things. But yeah. In reality, you can't do that. It's almost like when I find like a new food that I love, I'll just binge it. And if I like, I feel like if I eat anything else at that period of time, I'll just die. Yeah. But with the caterpillar, it's like a real situation. It's real. And it's kind of spectacular. Like this is both in terms of like as a little individual critter. And as part of the food web, you have these like hard, crunchy leaves with these like cell wall, like plant cells have cell walls, like they're hard, they're, they're just, they don't seem like they'd be that nutrient rich. And then you have these little guys who are eating them with these scary looking mouths. They actually have pretty scary mouths. So instead of opening up and down, like our mouth does, they open like this. And oh, I'll explain this verbally for folks on the radio, like... but your mouth opens, I guess, yeah, like the hot south, dog and their mouth opens right? east to west. <laughs> <laughs> east to west. Okay, I like it. I and like they it. like eat down the leaves like num 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 in these little rows. And then suddenly they like magically take that hard like plant tissue and become these like soft little bags of fat and protein and water, which are Yeah, they're like they're goo in, in their in their like, either, <laughs> their cocoon or chrysalis. Right? It's now it, cocoon and chrysalis are different, right? Uh, yeah, so I think technically moths cocoon and, and butterflies form uh, chrysalis, but... But either way, it it's like a, a lump of goo inside there. It's not like a little uh, little caterpillar like slowly changing into that. Don't they like almost like melt? They dissolve. It's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, they, they dissolve, rearrange themselves, and come out. And I do want to say something, though. I'm not going to let it... So... There's something you said a couple minutes ago. I'm not going to let it slide where you said that butterflies oh, no. are cuter. Oh, God. Here we go. Because this is a common thing. And I am I am not saying anything against butterflies. I think butterflies are great. I think they often get more attention because of how pretty their wings are and because they're active yeah. during the day. But my moths, um, they actually mate in the late afternoon. So at like 4 or 5 p.m., you actually see these big, beautiful moths being really active. And they're actually really colorful and pretty. And I love it because they are also so fuzzy. So just like bats, I consider moths to be sky puppies. <laughs> That's adorable. They are super fuzzy and cute. And you can't think about it too hard, though. Like if you look at their faces, you can't think about it too hard because they don't have mouths. And that's a little freaky. Oh, they don't have mouths? How do they eat? They So my silk moths do not eat at all as adults. They just... They do all of their eating <laughs> as a caterpillar. Okay. They go into their cocoon stage and then they come out and they're like, woo, I have two weeks to mate. And then they die. (laughs) 
All right. That seems like a lot of work to have two weeks to mate and die. But it, I mean, it works because if it didn't work, they wouldn't still be here. Wow, that's fascinating. So they, so they don't even they don't even eat. I, that blows my mind. Yeah, some other species do. That's why some moths are uh, good pollinators, but my species don't. Oh, okay. So that's super cool. So they're they're building up their entire life, eating all of these little uh, leaves or whatever they're eating, all just for the effort of reproducing in the long run. Yeah, and I think there's something kind of beautiful. It's like a celebration at the end of their life. It's like they spend all of their time. Like the female has laid her eggs on a host plant, they hatch out, they're eating, they're eating, they're eating. They likely stay in a very similar spot, if not even the same plant. They form their cocoons, the cocoon hangs there on that same plant. And then at the very end of their life, they burst out and suddenly they have wings and they can fly and it's just really beautiful. Yeah, that is super cool. So so you had these these females that they hatch, they release their pheromones, as you were saying. So I'm assuming that's just like a smell it's of like something? A, yeah, it's some type of chemical signal that we can't really detect, but that's why moths have such fuzzy antennae. So they're actually detecting, they like smell, quote unquote, with their antennae. Oh, yeah. And uh, the male salt moths will travel, this is the crazy part, for miles. So they can like detect a female that's miles away. And then somehow they make it there. I still don't understand the physics of like, they're gentle flapping and they can travel miles. <laughs> I'm used to birds that are just like a rocket, like pew, but no, the moths are like, da 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 like flitting. Yeah, they flutter. That's they like, that's like, they flutter. <laughs> what is up with that? And you see like the, the butterfly migrations. Do moths migrate like butterflies or not so much? Not mine. Um, so a lot of, um, invertebrates actually overwinter as cocoons, um, even like beetles. There are beetles right now, but they're, uh, well, they're not true cocoons. We call them pupae, but their pupae um, aren't hanging in the trees. They're buried in the soil. So uh, some of your uh, invertebrates or insects, you know, leave the premises for the winter and some hunker down in uh, various forms like pupa. Is that kind of like hibernating, like a bear goes into a cave kind of situation? Yes and no, because they also do like the development. So, right, when my moths go into their cocoons, they go into the cocoon as a caterpillar, which is their larval stage, and they come out with wings. Like when beetles go into their pupae underground, they go from being their larval stage and they form their adult stage and then come out. And I know that this is not exactly the thing that you, you rear in your garage, unless maybe you do. Um, but is there some significant difference between the larval stage of the beetle and their adult stage? Yeah. So when we talk about insect larvae, like they're kind of the things that you think of as being like wormy. So a caterpillar mm-hmm. looks kind of wormy, but then it has, you know, its little, its little sucker feet, its little legs that it crawls on things mm-hmm. with. We always think about the little crawling motion. Um, beetle larvae are also long um, and smooshy, but they have their legs and they have big chomping mouths because most beetles are uh, are carnivorous. <laughs> and so oh, they're actually predators okay. that are running around and eating other smaller invertebrates. And then they form a pupa. And when they come out, um, they often are now flight capable and they have that hard shell, like thinking about a ladybug. A ladybug is a beetle and the little red uh, part of its shell, those little part of its wings pop up and it has softer wings underneath, which is how it flies. Um, it develops those. That's like the adult form. This is it's honestly so fascinating. And it, you can't really 
so much compare it to a human because humans kind of look like humans their entire life. They don't go through this like transformational. Step. We don't develop extra cool limbs or like. No. Butterflies suddenly have these proboscis, these like curly Q tongues. We don't suddenly get like a longer tongue as we grow. <laughs> That'd be cool. I mean, puberty's pretty awful, but we don't like get we cool. We don't get cool appendages. stuff out of it like that. Yeah. <laughs> what a waste of time. <laughs> Okay, so you, you're raising these uh, giant silk, can we call them giant silk worms? Are they giant silk moss, even if they're larvae? I, I want to be, you know, more accurate about the, the way I oh, say Oh, I don't it. know. I just, the adults are giant silk moss, the larvae are right, caterpillars. Fair. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so so you're, you're raising these things. You do it in your garage. Uh, your husband's okay with it. So that's like, you know. It took, yeah, the first year he was not too pleased. And yeah. he, cause he's not a biologist. So he's like, this is a little weird. Um, but then he met the adults. So he was like, oh, the caterpillars are so messy and you're spending all this time feeding them. And, eh. and then he met the adults and like held a little sky puppy and was like, I Aww. love him. Look how fluffy he is. <laughs> he, he became hooked. So it's kind of a hobby that we enjoy together. I do most of the caterpillar care, but he likes to be there when we do like the releases of the adults. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? That's like such a picturesque moment, the release of the adults. It's really exciting. When, a lot of them, when they first come out, um, it, especially if it's like a chilly day, they'll actually sit on your hands. You can scoop them and hold them. And then the heat of your hands starts to warm them up and they start to like vibrate. It's almost like they're like getting ready. And so they start to like shiver Ooh. their little wings and they're like getting ready, getting ready. And all of a sudden it's like, pew, and then they're up like a rocket. So it's really exciting because it's not just like opening it into a container and they fly out. You get to actually like hold them. Oh, that is so fascinating. I love it. What would you say in all of this raising process and the the rearing is the most difficult thing? Frass. Frass. So <laughs> frass is just a, a scientific term for caterpillar poop. So um, as they are, it's actually a really good like compost. It's good to put on your garden. Um, it's very nutrient rich, but... As, as I'm rearing these these caterpillars in buckets, basically um, I put them in the bucket with um, some of their host plant material and they're crawling around and they're eating and they're growing and they're pooping, at, you know, input, output. So uh, frass builds up and you have to clean it out. And it's really important to clean it out regularly um, because if you don't, then the caterpillars can get sick from like fungus and bacterial infections. Okay, I mean, obviously they're eating. They need to, to get rid of waste. I mean, that just makes sense. You have to clean a litter box after your cat mm -hmm. and your dog. You have the little doggy bags for a reason. Um, so you you get rid of all of this stuff and, and you can pick it up. Like, is, it seems like it would be really small. Oh, well, it, it's really small and, like, easy to dump out when they are small. But once they oh. get bigger... I would say sometimes their they, their frass comes out as like a solid like piece, and it actually has <laughs> really interesting shape to it that I think has something to do with like the shape of their digestive tract. It's always like a really specific shape. Um, but the bigger the caterpillars get, they go through different growth stages called instars, and they look slightly different. So like you know when they've shed their their skin like the way that a snake does, and they've like leveled up, if you will, and they look different. They're like the next instar. <laughs> When you get to fifth instar, some of these guys, they're, they're like frass. Each individual piece is like the size of a dime. Wow. Like it's, it's a poopy process. <laughs> Sounds Which like is also it. also why I didn't want to try to rear 2,000 of them. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I imagine you create a, a good amount of waste with the amount that you do. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny because you can be like sitting there cleaning out a bucket and you've already done one bucket. And you just hear, you hear it drop. You hear like this little like sound and you're like someone just pooped in that bucket. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like enough to make a sound. But frass is around you. Like if you go out in the woods, you are surrounded by frass. There are caterpillars of all different kinds everywhere eating leaves. It falls. It's part of you know, the cycle, it gets incorporated into the leaf litter and into the soil. So frass happens. You, you wouldn't believe, and honestly, people who have, you know, listened to this show week after week, you wouldn't believe how excited biologists get about poop. <laughs> it's... I mean, if you're a mammologist, you probably don't get to see your, your critter without a camera trap, but you can find their scat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you guys, you have a passion. You know what, I'll give you that. And I'm so glad that I stick with like photochemistry. I'm gonna, I'm happy with my energy levels. I, I mean, don't have to deal with feces. herbivore poop isn't that bad. Like omnivore and carnivore poop gets dangerous because of the different kinds of bacteria and things that are in it. Herbivore poop is pretty safe to deal with, like for us health wise. Oh. So that's good. Interesting. I, I had no idea. So, like, there's the difference. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to just make a guess. You're not supposed to use things like dog and cat and human poop for fertilizer. Mm -hmm. But herbivores, like you use cow and sheep and chicken, mm -hmm. they they should be used for, like, fertilizer? I don't know about chicken. Chickens can be omnivorous. Oh, they can be? Yeah, they eat insects and things. So I'm not sure about chickens. I know oh, that people use, okay. yeah, like cow and horse, like you mentioned. And then for us, we have raised bed garden plots this year, and we, we did dump frass out into the soil to help compost it. And how were your plants? The best tomatoes ever. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> like, we could put that on a sticker on the tomatoes, like, fed with caterpillar frass. <laughs> fed? No, this is like an artisanal product that we're not... Oh. For people who are listening, we're not actually advertising this. This is a joke. Okay. But um, gotcha. <laughs> they are hand-reared giant silk moth artisanal compost frass right like, something like <laughs> That's, that um, you could charge a lot of money for that <laughs> and, and and you know that the, the the frass was raised in an ethical humane environment too right yeah. it's really um from poop bucket to fork <laughs> i like that i don't think my husband will like that but <laughs> You know, you just close your eyes and just picture, you know, the taste of the tomato. Try not to think of the caterpillar excrement. Yeah. That is, that's so cool. Uh, so you're getting really a lot of things out of this. Not only are you helping the environment, but you're also uh, getting like one. Well, actually, you get a lot of things out of this one. You you get this this uh, soil or, or at least a soil supplement for your tomatoes. You get to increase the population of a declining population of a bug. But you're also using this as a teaching tool, which is the part that I'm kind of the most in love with right now is that you're supplying these uh, creatures out to kids who are just like curious that things are moving around and crawling and growing. Um, and that's so cool. So could you give us, for the people that are listening, the people who you can't visit with a little you know bug cage, what could we do? How can we join in on this process? That's a great question. So I think one of the, the biggest conservation issues that extends even beyond my particular moth babies. That's what we, we call them, my moth babies. They're moth babies, um, yeah. <laughs> that is just a big issue for everyone that a lot of folks can, can contribute to is planting native plants. So um, this is a native moth species, meaning it evolved here. It wasn't introduced from somewhere else. 
Um, and a lot of herbivorous insects have really, really close evolutionary relationships with their host plants. They can't just, you know, a leaf isn't a leaf, right? There are specific kinds of leaves that they need for different nutrients. Not everything's interchangeable. And so um, when people have come in and not only just removed habitat, but then also planted ornamental or non-native plant species, either in their yards or landscaping other areas, um, you're removing habitat on a micro scale. You're taking away potential food resources for these insects and then also the other creatures that rely on them. And so one of the coolest things is that you can, um, if you have access to green spaces that you have some kind of input or say, maybe you are a homeowner um, who has a yard that you can control kind of what's going on in there plant-wise, replacing these ornamental or invasive non-native plants with native plants is better for not just arthropods, but for other wildlife, for the birds who are going to come in and eat them, for um, basically the whole ecosystem that your yard is providing. Oh, wow. So you don't have to be as dedicated to raise bugs and buckets in your garage to really help out these species. That's super cool. Yeah, you don't have to deal with frass. You don't have to deal with frass <laughs> to help them out. Um, and if you're really interested in caterpillars, one of the, the best uh, tree species for caterpillars in our area is black cherry. So black that's cherry. what my okay. that's what my little guys are raised on. They eat black cherry leaves and they love it. Um, so that's something to consider is maybe if you're thinking about different trees to plant, um, planting some black cherry would be. Yeah, well, I'll link some uh, information on, you know, different native plants that you can plant in, in, in your specific area um, on the show's archive pages. So thank you for that information. I, I think that if anything, I'll try to do a little bit of a native plant planting. I live on a concrete lot, though. Um, but I will, I have like a little area that has like a tree kind of near, I'm going to see what I can do about that. That's the amazing thing with these, these critters that are so mobile too. So some folks like live on a balcony and have just a, a planter pot full of parsley or, or some other kind of herb like that. And things like swallowtail butterflies will find that, lay their eggs on it. The caterpillars will eat the plant then they'll form their cocoons and the cycle continues. You don't have to be providing a huge amount of space to still be contributing overall. Oh, wow. Well, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a window planter. <laughs> I'm just going to do that because I live on I, I live on this this street and we only have like this little, you know, square inch of grass, which for some reason they feel that they need to mow on Sunday mornings at like 5 a.m this square inch of grass. Um, so, so by having really no green space near me, I can still contribute by something as small as a windowsill planter. Yes. All right. Deal. <laughs> that, that sounds like something that we could all reasonably do, um, to really help a, a declining species. So that's super cool. And studies have shown that access to green space and interacting with plants are be better for your mental health too. So by planting a window box, like you get to enjoy that greenery as well. Oh, wow. So I enjoy it. The birds enjoy it. The caterpillars enjoy it. The future moths for their two weeks of mothhood <laughs> um, before, you know, laying eggs and dying. They get to enjoy it. And, and you know what? That That's beautiful. That's the circle of life right there, isn't it? Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Kit. It was a real pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. Kit just gave us the rundown on what it is like to be the parent or, well, I guess foster parent of hundreds of giant silk moths. 
that's her hobby. That's what she likes to do. And it's a really good thing that she's doing it because it turns out that these populations of moths really need our help. And although today's show wasn't, you know, strictly scientific findings, it's still super important for us to do a quick fact check and make sure that we didn't say anything too, too wrong. Because, well, that's kind of the point of doing science. Make sure that you're not wrong. After listening to the episode a little bit, we, we decided to look into the origins of chicken litter as fertilizer. And it turns out that actually the first fertilizers that were really ever invented came from bird excrements. Turns out what the birds leave behind is really high in nitrogen, which is a key element needed for the growth of plants. In fact, it has been a actually pretty interesting industry. It has led to almost the depopulation of entire species over the pursuit of finding more fertilizer. So I guess like the old book says, everybody does number two. That's including giant silk moss, chickens, and you. Uh, the difference between using number two and doing number two is very different, so maybe we'll save that for another show. But until then, I want to thank you for listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff.